0: morning. Welcome to this week's service here at Arendelle Alliance Church. My name is Pastor Jordan Green. I'm one of the pastors here. As we begin, I'd like to take us to Psalm chapter 66. Let the whole earth shout joyfully to God. Sing about the glory of his name. Make his praises glorious. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. The whole earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. Come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. He turned the sea into dry land, and they crossed the river on foot. There we rejoiced in him. His rules forever by his might, and he keeps his eye on the nations. The rebellious should not exalt themselves. Bless our God, you peoples. Let the people, let the sound of his praise be heard. He keeps us alive and he does not allow our feet to slip. Would you bow with me in prayer as we begin? Gracious God, we thank you for this week as we gather wherever we might be to celebrate being your people. You are our God. Lead us and guide us. Lord, in this service, would you meet us? Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Would you guide us into all truth and fill us, we ask. In the name of Christ, amen. By way of announcements for this week, Pastor Matt has asked that All students in grades 7 to 12, be aware. There's the annual student ministry fall kickoff. And so please be thinking about that. Have it on your calendar. It will be Wednesday, September 2nd from 7 to 9 p.m. There are details in your e-bulletin. And feel free to get a hold of Pastor Matt if you want to know more about what's going on. Also, he's looking for one to two more volunteers to help with the youth program for this coming year. If you are interested, please contact him and he'll give you the information that you will need as you're making that decision. Our youth programs are absolutely critical to what we do here at the church. And so if God's nudging you, I'd encourage you to talk to Pastor Matt. We are in process right now of exploring what our other fall programs are going to look like with COVID on. We will be getting more information out to you. Thank you for your patience in this. There are some fairly significant challenges. As we're waiting on the schools to reopen and looking at what social distancing will look like as we run our programs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the Arendelle Alliance Church, please contact me. I've had a few people express some interest and want to know more about it. If you want to talk about what does it mean to be a member, how do you go about the process. Or if you're interested in taking the membership class and know more about our church, we'd love to talk to you. And finally, if you're watching this video at home and you're not receiving our e-bulletin, please get a hold of our office this week and talk to them about it. Our e-bulletin is for those who call Arendale Alliance Church home. But we realize that in COVID season and with so many joining us online, our family has changed a little bit. And so if you're interested in the e-bulletin, please contact us and we'll talk to you about it. And now we're going to see a short missions video from one of our missions reps, Heather hahn Cabasis, And uh, she brings us to us to let us know what's happening in her world.
1: God is Emmanuel. God is three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even though this is a mystery to us, God is knowable. I love the name Emmanuel. And that's why we gave one of my sons that name. God is with us so that he, no matter what he experiences in life, or he's scared or he has a big challenge, he can always remember, God is with me. God is with us. And he shows us his love while we are still sinners. We didn't do anything to deserve that. He just lavishes and pours his love on us because he loves us so much. Now, oftentimes, the best messages I hear from God are through my kids. My two- and my four-year-old, they don't preach like a pastor, but oftentimes as I interact with them, I hear God speaking a message of love to me. Not long ago, we had left one of their tractors behind on a trip. Now, honestly, for this tractor, it's like a really cheap piece of plastic. I paid maybe 25 cents. It's really cheap. And we had to do a big loop and go back around and look really hard until we could find this much treasured tractor by my kids. Do you think it was worth it to spend all that money on gas and all that time to go and get a little piece of plastic? We didn't do it because it was worth a lot of monetary or a lot of money. We did it because it's a lot of value in my kids eyes. Well the same is true of you and me. We don't do a lot that maybe makes us famous or or worth a lot, but we are worth a lot because Jesus loves us. God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to give his life for us. That's way more than any of us could do for our kids or for our family. Jesus loves you, and he gave his life for you. While we were still sinners, he let us know that he was going to pay the price and give us full-on forgiveness. Perhaps this is one of the greatest things about being an I.W is just simply getting to know God's love and how much he loves me. That message is, blows my mind and is so awesome that I have to share it with other people. This week we've been talking to you about giving to the Global Advance. This is a fund that you can see the link here on, on, on your screen, in which you give to people like myself get to go and tell other people about Jesus. And we pray that in turn those people tell more people about Jesus. We want to pray together that many people will be able to hear that Jesus loves us while we are still sinners and that he has paid the price and that we are of much worth in his eyes. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you loved us when we were still sinners. We didn't earn it. <laughs> and thank you that you love us so much. We want to know that every day of our life, how much you love us. And we pray that it, this love and that we are discovering, we would share it with other people. We also pray, Father, that you would help us to give and to go and tell other people and to rest and celebrate in the fact that you love us so much, Jesus. In your name, amen.
0: As we go to prayer this morning, we would like to remember some of our international workers and also the needs here in our church family. So would you bow with us in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for your work in our world. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy that you don't simply extend to one group, but to all of humanity. Lord, thank you that you love the world and sent your son to die for us. And Father, we partner with our brothers and sisters around the world and the work that you've called them to, realizing that you've called us to be one people. Father, we think this morning of Dory with Power to Change and ask that you'd have your hand upon her ministry that you bless her time as she is on holidays right now, that it would be a time of refreshing and renewal for her, that as she returns to her ministry, that it would be with power, that it would be with clarity and insight, Lord, that you bless her where you have her. We think of Heather and her family and the ministry that you've called them to. And we're so thankful for their many years of faithful service. Lord, we lift them before you and ask that you protect them, that you give them wisdom as parents, that you guard their marriage, that you would use them in the various places and relationships you've called them to, that your hand would be upon them. Think of uh, Pastor Luis and his wife Melva at the Spanish Alliance Church here in the city, and Father, thank you for the ministry you've called them to, commit them and the needs of their congregation to you as you continue to use them, particularly with the Spanish community. That uh, as they prepare for an elders' meeting upcoming, that you would give them wisdom to know what issues to discuss, what decisions you're calling them to make as a church, that you would have your hand upon their people, that you continue to be protecting them as many are working on the front lines and the challenges that COVID brings. Father, that you would provide for the finances that they need in this COVID season, where we know many are struggling and we have many who are unemployed. We know many ministries are hurting. We lift the Spanish Alliance before you, but we also think of our Bible camps in the area. We know that many are really feeling a challenge this summer as our world has changed. Give them wisdom to know what ministry should look like. Provide for them as, as they need. Guide them in how to advance your kingdom. Father, we think of our fellow Alliance churches. We think of Outlook Alliance and lift them before you. We think of Pinowan, Portage of the Prairie, and thank you for these churches as they continue to lift up your name every week, proclaim your gospel, ask that your hand would be upon them. Lord, for our own congregation, we are so thankful that you've called us as a church family. Thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Lord, as we, as we fellowship together, as we challenge one another, I'm reminded again of how desperately we need a family. Thank you that you've called us as a family here at Arundel Alliance Church. Lord, we seek you for protection, not only from COVID, but from the, the realities of life that you would watch over us and that you would shelter us. We think of our students and our young people and ask your blessing over them. We think of our interns, and this week Sarah will be returning to college for her fourth year. Pray a blessing over her. Lord, would you protect these young people? We Think of our seniors and ask for your hand of mercy over them. But Lord, more than protection, Would you give us a dream and a vision? Holy God, more than keeping us safe, would you use us to advance your kingdom? Holy Spirit, would you fill us, your people, that we might be faithful to your call upon us? We think of the elders and ask that you give them wisdom as they lead us. We thank you for our deacons as they continue to find ways that we could fellowship together and that hospitality would happen and that people's needs would be met. We think of our pastoral team, our And our staff team, thank you for these folks as they continue to serve us. Fall is coming, Lord, and we think of Sunday School and ESL that is connected to it. We think of our youth programs and our quizzing program. We think of our seniors' ministries and our worship ministries. Lord, we have so many ministries that you've called us to in this church. Would you guide us in them? Would you use them? Most of all, holy God, Would we know that you are God? Would we walk faithfully with you as your people? Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction? Would you bring forgiveness? And would you bring renewed passion for you? Sanctify us and make us like Christ. Have your way in and through us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen.
2: Hello, my friends. It's time for Kids Talk today. And I have a little friend with me today. Isn't she cute? It's so nice to have friends, isn't it? Have you ever heard, though, that a dog is a man's best friend? I'm not quite sure why people would say that, though. Because dogs drool. Not a fan of that. Dogs, when they eat and drink, they make a mess all over the floor. They like to chew things up like shoes and other things. And when you go to sit down and watch your favorite TV show, what do they need? They need to be let out. Then they need to be let back in again. Then they want to go out again and come back in again. You feel like a yo-yo. And most dogs, inside dogs anyway, shed. And hair gets all over the place. And that's another mess to clean up. You're either vacuuming or dusting all the time. You almost have to wear clothes that are the same color as your dog. So other people don't see how much dog hair is all over you. Outside dogs too have their own problems. The the neighbors can get upset when the dog barks or if the dog gets out of the yard and gets into your neighbor's garden and digs it all up. That's not you're not being such a good neighbor. And then there's all the grooming and the vet bills and the food and the cleaning up after them. Dogs are expensive and a lot of work. But many people still do have friends that they have as dogs, or dogs that they have as friends. Dogs don't mind being with you. Even if you're wearing your junky old clothes or if you're having a bad hair day, they don't mind. They are always happy to see you and they're already always ready to go for a car ride, especially if you let them hang their head out the window and they can pant in the breeze. They like that. You can train your dogs to fetch your slippers for you. Now, if you have math homework, they might not be so good with that, but they are really good listeners, and they can be trusted not to tell your secrets. Dogs can make a really good friend, but it's not a friendship like what Jesus can offer us and does offer us. Jesus knows everything about us. He knows the good and the bad, but he chooses to love us anyway. He loves us more than our families and our friends, and he doesn't care how we look. Christians come in all sizes and shapes and colors, and he loves us all, and he goes with us wherever we go, and unlike other friends, Jesus can make a real difference in what happens in our lives. Because Jesus is God, that means he's holy and he's perfect, And he could have made a great big long list of the requirements for us to be his friend. He could have said that you always have to have your toys picked up and your room tidy. For some of us, that might be a little bit hard. Or you always have to have your teeth brushed. Again, some of us might have trouble with that. That might be hard for us. Jesus could have commanded us that If we were to be his friend, we couldn't have any other friends too. But Jesus' only command for us is that we love him. And that is a fairly easy thing to do. And in the Bible, I'm going to put my friend under here. In the Bible, it tells us in John, and I'm going to try and read it here. Mrs. Petty's getting some old eyes, so it's a little harder to read. But in John chapter 15, in verse 12, it says this. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Jesus calls us his friend. We can be a friend of Jesus if we love him and if we love others like Jesus loves them. That seems easy enough to do, doesn't it? So does that mean I have to love that kid at school who's kind of stuck up and thinks he's better than everybody else? Yeah, we have to love him too. What about that teacher that gives you lots of homework right before the weekend and expects it to be done when you come back to school on Monday? Do we have to love that teacher too? Yes. Yes, we do. What about the bully that makes fun of you or teases other kids in their class? Do you have to love her too? Yeah. God wants us, Jesus wants us to love all of them just like Jesus loves them. Sometimes loving others is not easy at, our, at all. Our hearts, remember, want to do what makes us happy. And sometimes we choose to do hurtful things to others. And that's not such a good thing. But, my friends, when we do love Jesus and when we love others, God promises many rewards. And one of the best ones is that we can be friends with Him. A dog is a really good friend but he isn't man's best friend. Jesus is, and that's a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us and for being our friend, and thank you for being our Savior. Help us to be a friend to others this week, and help us to love others as you love them. Let our hands and our hearts and our minds serve you with honor, and may, we always, and may you always be glorified with, with whatever we do and say. By the power in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming and listening to Kids Talk today. We'll see you again next
3: week. Hi, my name is Marilyn Bates, and I will be doing the Bible reading today. Today our reading is from Acts 8, and I'll be reading verses 1 to 25 from the Christian Standard Bible. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven, for I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans.
4: we believe.
0: Good morning and welcome to Arendelle Alliance Church's service. I'm aware we're actually partway through, but welcome to the sermon portion, the message portion this morning. My name is Pastor Joran Green. I'm the lead pastor here at Arendelle Alliance Church. I'd like to invite you, if you've got your Bibles close at hand, to turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We've just concluded a four-week series on one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, the book of Amos, and we're now coming back to the story of the early church as recorded by Luke in Acts. And just to kind of recap where we've been, aside from our four-week return to Israel, if you will, as we've gone to Amos, we see in the early part of Acts as the disciples are told, wait in Jerusalem, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's going to come. Acts 2, we see the fulfillment of that promise. They've replaced Judas Iscariot. We have a new apostle. We see the early days as the church begins to gain momentum. We see the miracles that are performed. The man who was healed, who had been lame all his life, sitting at the beautiful gate. We see the conflict between Peter, John, the apostles... Versus the Sanhedrin, as the Sanhedrin says, don't preach in this name. We've watched some of the early challenges of the church. As Ananias and Sapphira lie, we've had Stephen, the first apologist of the church and the first martyr of the church, where he stood up and said, here's who Jesus Christ is, has placed Jesus for their consideration both to the Sanhedrin and the synagogue of freedmen. And at the end of his trial with the Sanhedrin, they drag him out and they kill him. And that's where we're going to pick up our story this week. And we're going to spend the next series of weeks in the book of Acts. I'm excited. Pastor Matt's going to be here next week talking about Acts chapter 9, the road to Damascus. And we'll let him take us where that story will next go. But for this week, we're seeing what happens in the aftermath of Stephen's death. And with this in mind, would you bow with me in prayer? Holy God, we invite you to come and to instruct our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you come and guide us into all truth. Would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you convict us? Would you encourage us? Holy God, would you change us, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we begin Acts chapter 8 picking up on the aftermath of Stephen being executed. And it wasn't one of those planned public executions like what was done with Christ where the Romans are involved. The Sanhedrin gnashing teeth, tearing garments, grabs him, drags him out, kills him. And we pick up Acts chapter 8 with a very typical Luke- Lucian, Luke-style introduction. Luke likes to introduce us to characters And then move on and come back to them. And he makes passing reference here in the first couple of verses. As Stephen is being stoned to death and asking for the forgiveness of those who are watching. Saul is there in verse 1. And he's giving approval to what's going on. And Luke now introduces us to this new character Saul. He doesn't give us a whole lot of detail on him. He introduces us to the name. He did this with Joseph. Also known as Barnabas. But he gives us a little more detail here in reminding us that after the death of Stephen, Saul goes on a quest to rid the world of Christianity. And to me, Saul is one of those classic examples of the sense of humor of God. If we were going to pick who we would send as a missions rep, Saul would not make the cut. I I don't remember who did it, if it was one of my students, one of my classmates, or something found online. Somebody did up Saul's resume And dressed it up to give to a mission sending agency to see if they would consider him. And it was actually kind of an amusing piece because once you get through the details, there's elements that look really good. Past occupation, hunter and killer of Christians. Saul is hunting and what happens now we see, except for the apostles, the Christians in Jerusalem are scattered. And they head out into the countryside, not only into Judea. But they also moved north into Samaria, what had traditionally been Israelite territory. Until what we read about the last few weeks, what we've talked about the last few weeks. Amos warns the Israelites, punishment's coming, exile's coming. Samaria are the lands that those northern tribes had previously lived in. They're taken off, they never come back. The Samaritans are the group of people the Assyrians brought in to inhabit Israel's old territory. And there's actually kind of this really interesting tension between Samaritan and Jew that we'll talk about in a few moments. But the church scatters outside of Jerusalem. Remember, the Sanhedrin wants to kill the church. They want the church to stop. The death of Stephen is like gasoline on a fire. Because instead of the group preaching and teaching in Jerusalem, now we've got smaller groups and smaller, less prominent individuals. But far more of them have now moved into the countryside, not only into Judea. But into Samaria, talking about who is Jesus Christ. And this takes us to our first character that we truly meet here that I want to look at. This morning we're going to kind of work on basically four characters that we see in Acts chapter 8. The first character we now meet is our friend Philip. Philip was one of those seven men that was chosen when the Hellenistic Jewish widows were not able to get food. They didn't speak Aramaic. They didn't speak the indigenous language. The decision was made by the apostles. We need help. And so they invite these seven deacons to step in and make sure the widows are looked after. Stephen is one of those deacons, but so is Philip. Stephen's now dead. We now pick up the story with Philip. He goes and he begins. Begins to teach about who Jesus Christ is. And notice verses 6 and 7. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said. And they were listening and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Interestingly, just like what we talked about, it's now weeks ago. About how Stephen looks like the apostles. He performs miracles. He's able to preach. He's able to teach. He's able to defend the gospel. To the point of death. As Peter, as John, as the other apostles do. Philip falls into the same mold. He's casting out demons. He's healing. As Jesus said, you'll do greater miracles than I do. And he wasn't just talking to the apostles. He passes this on to the church. And so Philip... One of these seven deacons whose primary role is to look after widows to make sure they're properly fed is now doing the work of an evangelist. And in fact, we now consider him to have shifted roles because we're not looking after the widows in Jerusalem as we once did because the Christians have scattered because Saul's hunting and trying to kill them. Stephen, uh, sorry, Philip is doing the work of an evangelist in what is traditionally considered enemy territory. Now, I've already alluded to when the northern ten tribes of Israel are carted off by the the Assyrians in 721, I think it was. They're taken off. We don't know where they go. The Assyrians brought in a new people group to, to live in the land that had previously been part of the northern tribe of Israel. Over the next centuries, the Samaritans become kind of this really interesting hybrid because they hear... The law of Moses, not every Israelite was carted out of the land. A few still remain. They have the cities of the Israelites. They have the infrastructure of the Israelites. And they're brought into these new cities to live. And over these next few hundred years, the Samaritans begin to try and follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But because they're not Jewish, the Jews are uncomfortable with them. They're not given access to the Jerusalem temple. And there becomes some fairly serious race tension between the two groups. In fact, at one point, when Jesus is traveling, they go in. They're not welcomed into a Samaritan village. And the Sons of Thunder, James and John, ask, Shall we call down fire from heaven to destroy the village? And you kind of get the sense that there's animosity there between Samaritan and Jew. And there were different events that had happened in their not-so-distant history to what's happening here with Philip. Where the Samaritans, they want to try and follow God. They don't know how to follow God. The Jews are, are really struggling with inviting them in. Now a Jewish evangelist shows up. And everyone begins to pay attention. Just as Jesus' miracles were the indication. You need to listen to the teaching. Just as the miracles that Peter and John have done have brought the temple to a standstill. Now Philip is doing miracles, but again they're for the purpose of evangelizing. And those miracles get the attention of the crowds. This takes us to our second character. So we have Philip, who is being faithful to what God has given him. He, I don't think he planned to go to Samaria. I'm not sure he's necessarily, it was high on his holiday travel plans. But he takes the gospel with him where God has taken him. And he shares the gospel where God calls him to share. And we're going to come back to that. But our second character is actually the Samaritans. Because they hear the message and they begin to respond. And they're bringing the sick and the demon-possessed. They believed Philip, verse 12. As he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God. And the name of Jesus Christ. And both men and women were baptized. And so the response of the Samaritans as they hear the proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died, that he was buried, that he was resurrected on the third day, they hear that, they see the miracles to know it's true, and they respond in faith. Which takes us to our third character. Because while the Samaritans are being evangelized, we meet another individual called Simon. Simon the sorcerer. In Simon's case, he had a reputation He had a reputation, they called him the great power, and he he was some sort of magic man, some sort of magician, some sort of mystic, and the locals recognized the power that he had. But interestingly, as the gospels proclaimed, he sees the miracles of Philip, and he hears the truth, notice what we see here in verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and afterward he was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. So Simon himself responds just as a broader Samaritan community does. They hear the gospel. They believe the gospel. They repent. They're baptized. He himself enters into this. But that's not the whole story on our third character. That of Simon. So while the crowd is listening, while the crowd is picking up the teaching... Simon's following Philip. But notice what's not mentioned here at this point. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit. Word gets back to Jerusalem that the Samaritans have responded. Peter and John are dispatched. Because only the apostles remain right now in Jerusalem among the major players in the church. Everyone else scattered. They're afraid of Saul. Saul's hunting Christians. He's throwing them in prison. Peter and John are dispatched because the Holy Spirit has not come. So they come to the Samaritans. They observe the ministry of Philip. They see the response of the Samaritans to the gospel. And their response, I just, I I really appreciate this. When they see it, they recognize that the Samaritans are becoming believers as well. So they lay hands and ask the Holy Spirit to fill them. Because to this point, the only baptism they've had is the baptism of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, water baptism. Our baptism tank's right there. We need to use it more, by the way. If you haven't been baptized, we'll talk. They have only received water baptism. Peter and John lay hands on them. The people are filled with the Spirit. And the Samaritan conversion experience has now been completed to look like the Jewish conversion experience. At one point, Jesus says to Peter, Your name is Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth earth will be loosed in heaven. And this idea, and there's been debate around what do the keys of the kingdom look like or what do they mean, but we got our second hint of what does it mean for Peter to have the keys of the kingdom. Don't miss this. Peter preaches the first message. The Holy Spirit comes. Jews are converted. The church instantly grows. But now our second people group comes in. They're not Jewish. They're kind of, sort of, similar to Jewish, but they're not Jewish. But the Holy Spirit comes when Peter and John come and lay their hands. Because Jesus has asked Peter to partner with him in the spread of the gospel. By laying hands on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit, we now have one people, Jew and Samaritan, who've received the fullness of, of the gospel. And Peter, by the will of Jesus Christ, has been central to this. And to jump ahead a few weeks, when our third major people group comes in, when the Gentiles are welcomed into the church, who's going to do it? Peter is, again, with an interesting twist when it comes to the Holy Spirit. We'll deal with this in a few weeks' time. Peter and John have now ministered to the Samaritans. There is joy. We have salvation. The church has now expanded. The Sanhedrin wanted to stop the spread of the gospel. Now it has crossed into a new ethnic group. And there's Simon. Our sorcerer friend. He sees the power of Peter and John. What does he do? Verse 20. He asks if he can buy the power he wants to do what Peter and John does because he recognizes power. He's a magician. He looks at what they do and says, I cannot do this. It reminds me of Moses and Pharaoh's magicians. Verse 20. Peter said to him, may your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And Peter confronts Simon for his Wickedness and his evil, and his misunderstanding, and his twisting of the gospel. And there's an interesting comment made here a couple of verses later where Simon asks Peter to pray for him. And it suggests that even though he has been baptized, even though Simon has made a move towards being a true disciple of Jesus, there's that twist there would you pray for me? suggesting he's still in process. Our first character is Philip, the man faithful to the call of God on him. Our second character, the Samaritans, they have been outcasts. The Jews have looked down on them. They've seen them in very negative light. And they have now joined the people of God. Our third character, Simon, who will now step out of the act story, but who serves as a warning. We do not buy the power of God. And it suggests that he's in process of his salvation. He's maybe not as mature as we would hope. He's maybe not as holy as we hope. And this takes us to our fourth character. Our fourth character is an unusual man. Our fourth character is even more surprising than the Samaritans. The gospel going to Samaria, given the history between Jew and Gentile, and Jew and Samaritan in particular, being so tense... That's a surprise. But now we meet the Ethiopian eunuch. This man who is unnamed. He's not from the people of God. He's not from a people connected to the people of God. And because of his physical deformity. Because of his having been cut. According to Old Testament law. He is further excluded. Even if he was Jewish. He would be seen as an outcast. He'd be seen as an outsider. And there's a few times in the prophets where comments are made about the eunuchs being welcomed in. But they're few and far between. To be a eunuch means that you have been set aside from the rest of society. And yet here we have this man who's Ethiopian. He's African. He's not Jewish. Not connected. I really want to know what this Ethiopian story is. Why are you in Jerusalem? Why are you studying the word of God? Who evangelized you because somebody has shared with him the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. But we don't get any of those details because we have one encounter and then he's going to go home. And we don't even know the man's name. What happens, happens so quickly. Luke doing his research, talking to Philip. So what was it like with the Ethiopian? And I, I always imagine how the conversation, oh he was wonderful, He's great, we had a good time. So what was his name? I forgot to ask. We just don't know. Notice the setup that happens here, verse 27. The angel of the Lord has come to Philip and told him, I want you to go out into the wilderness. Reminds me of Abraham. Verse 27, he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and high official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her whole treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem. And as I say, we don't know his backstory, we don't know how he came to be wanting to follow the God Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he does. High official, powerful position, works for the most powerful official in the land, Queen Candace. It's a dynastic title. The way that they worked back then, the king was seen as too holy to actually do anything, so he was basically a figurehead, and the empire was typically run either by his wife or his mother, and she was called Candace. This man has a lot of power. And he's been in Jerusalem. He's reading. What's he reading? This is actually from Isaiah 53 verses 7 and 8. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. And don't tell me there's such a thing as chance and coincidence. Because this is what was being read. As Philip comes alongside the chariot. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shearer, and so does not open his mouth, in his humiliation justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? From his life is take, for his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch asks Philip the logical question as Philip comes alongside and goes, Who's the author speaking of? Himself or someone else? Well, of course we know it's not Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesying. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, where we have this hint of what will be done to Jesus Christ. in a number of places in the Gospels, Isaiah 53, is used as a backdrop to understand the crucifixion. It's used as the backdrop to understand the beating that Jesus went through prior to the cross. It used, it's used as an understanding of why will there be a resurrection. And Philip, he has been obedient to God's call on his life. And again, character study number one, Philip. He does what Jesus asks him to do, where Jesus asks him to do it, regardless of if he understands or not. Go to the wilderness. He goes to the wilderness. Chariot happens to be going by. The guy happens to be reading from Isaiah 53. And Philip's able to get in, come alongside, and explain to our fifth character, sorry, our fourth character, The Ethiopian, here is who Isaiah prophesied about. He explains salvation. He's had good practice because he's been just finished evangelizing the Samaritans. And the church has exploded in Samaria under his ministry. And they're in the wilderness and they're trucking through on the chariot. And I love the Ethiopian's response at this point. As Philip has explained in verse 35, the good news about Jesus from beginning to end. Notice the Ethiopians' response, verse 36. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch looked and said, look, there's water. What should keep me from being baptized? And so it goes on, tells us he gives orders because it's chariot. This isn't like little chariot. He's a government official. He has an entourage. Entourage comes to a stop. Look, there's water. Again, I have a strange sense of humor and a weird imagination. How deep would that puddle have been in the Jewish wilderness? Are we talking full immersion or are we rolling him around? We don't know. I have a strange sense of humor. My apologies. But I love his response. He has heard the gospel. Obviously, Philip's had some time with them because they've gotten to baptism. And the Ethiopian says, would you baptize me? Philip baptizes him. According to the will and purpose of God. And so in one chapter we've gone from the gospel is for Jews and only Jews have responded and the Sanhedrin doesn't even want that to. It's gone to the Samaritans and now we have an Ethiopian who's on his way home back to Africa and he's going to take the gospel with him. No, it's not modern day Ethiopia. It's the northern part. But still the gospel is now going to spread. What the Sanhedrin intended is not what they are getting one chapter, Jews, Samaritans, and now a Gentile. And not just a Gentile, but one who, because of what's been done to him physically, should be a complete outcast. Instead, he has become part of the children of God. Well, the story doesn't quite end there. Just kind of our last to to wrap it up, as it were. When they came out of the water, verse 39, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, where he was traveling and preached the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And Philip, our first character, will now step out of the story. We will not encounter Philip now for a number of chapters. When we meet him again, he's going to be married. He's going to have four daughters who are in ministry. Simon the sorcerer has now stepped out of the story. We're not going to see him again in the book of Acts. The Ethiopian eunuch leaves so quickly we don't even know the guy's name. But what do we see? The gospel is spreading according to the will and purpose of Jesus Christ. In Acts 1 8, Jesus tells his disciples to you need to stay in Jerusalem, Holy Spirit's going to come. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Check. Judea. Yep. Samaria. Yes, and now we are going to the ends of the earth. So what do we do with this? I want to suggest three things. Three, I call them so what's, and some week we'll actually talk about where so what comes from. There's a whole story behind that. Three applications. The first application I want us to be mindful of. Persecution will sometimes accompany the gospel. And persecution does not tell us if we're being successful or a failure. And if anything, based on Paul's own words in a few places, persecution's probably a hint that we're actually on the right track. Whether we like it or not, persecution is going to come. We don't really. I've sometimes wondered what would happen if I was persecuted. And I've, t- I've had this conversation with people down through the years. I-, I think it's one of those things we can't really know until the time comes. Until we're in the circumstance in the situation, all we can do is do the best we can to walk in faithful obedience to Jesus Christ. But to realize when it does happen, that it's not the worst thing. How often does persecution change the world? I posed a question about five weeks ago. And we need to come back to this question because next week we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. The question I posed was, would Saul, who will become Paul, have been ready to hear the gospel? Would he have been ready to respond to the gospel if it was not for Stephen's death and how he dies? And the challenge for us is that when persecution does find us, and we don't suffer under a lot of persecution in Canada... But that day may change. But when persecution for our conviction, when persecution for the truth of the gospel finds us, we don't know what our obedience is going to do. We don't know what our obedience is going to change. In the case of Stephen, as he's dying, he prays for the forgiveness of those who are killing him. Saul has heard the gospel. He has witnessed the death of Stephen. The persecution that results in the death of Stephen, I think has prepared the soul of Saul, as we'll see next week. But we need to be aware, persecution is part of the Christian life, whether we want it or not. Second application we need to consider. Jesus asks us to walk in trusting obedience. And this is connected with persecution, because when persecution comes, it's uncomfortable, it's terrible, we don't like it, it's awful. And yet Jesus says, trust me, follow me, walk with me. I think Philip is a great model. What does it look like when we walk in faithful obedience, and we do things, and God says, I want you to do something, we believe this is what God wants, and we step out in faith, and we don't understand? I would love to have a conversation with Philip. What were you thinking when God sent you to the middle of the wilderness? He just finished a whole series of crusade meetings in Samaria. We got hundreds of people coming to Christ. We got demons being driven out. Sicknesses are being cured. Peter and John have come down and endorsed your ministry publicly. Like, let's face it, as a pastor, this is kind of a pinnacle moment. And then the Spirit of God comes and says, Go to the wilderness. Okay. Walk faithfully in trusting obedience of Jesus. We see this modeled in Peter and John, where when they go to the Samaritans, they see what Jesus is doing among them, and realize they're Christians like we are. They lay hands, they invite the Holy Spirit to come, because God, in His grace and His wisdom, has forced the church to recognize He wants Samaritans, that it isn't two peoples, it's one people, Christians in one kingdom, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one Spirit, one gospel. Will we walk in obedience? Third, so what I want to consider. When I respond to the gospel message, it changes me. And we see this modeled in Stephen's life. We see this modeled in Peter's life and in John's life. But in particular, we see this modeled both in the Ethiopian and in the Samaritans. When the gospel comes, there's that celebration, there's that joy because they know we spend eternity with God. We now know who the creator of the universe is. We know how to worship him. We know how to honor him. We know how to walk with him. And they're never the same. When the gospel goes to Samaria, those communities are changed. The Ethiopian eunuch, he takes the life of Jesus home with him. And interestingly, in history, we wind up with these really interesting pockets of Christians in different places. And you're going, where did that come from? Because when we walk in a faithful obedience to Jesus and let him transform us, it changes things. And we don't know where that change is going to come. But we're called to be faithful, we're called to be obedient, and we're called to respond and we're called to embrace the fact that responding to the gospel is going to change who I am. This is contrasted with Simon the sorcerer. Simon the sorcerer has kind of kept some of his baggage. There's still sin in his soul. And lest we question that, keep in mind Peter's response to him. Again, may your silver and gold be destroyed with you, verse 20. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or shame in this matter. Because your heart is not right before God. And so we have this interesting contrast. The man with the magic, the man with the power has not been transformed fully by the gospel. And there's actually debate. Is he a Christian? Isn't he a Christian? That's a much more complicated question. Because this text says he believed and he's baptized. He's clearly in sin. He is clearly in sin we're reminded of the need to repent and Simon models this for us he doesn't do a very good job of it would you pray for me instead of repenting himself but we see it modeled with the Ethiopian we see it modeled with the Samaritans I would suggest there's probably some repentance even on the part of John he misunderstood some things in the time of Jesus Shall we call down fire to destroy this village of the Samaritans? Now he's going there to love them and welcome them in as brothers and sisters in the faith. We're reminded of the work of the Holy Spirit and the need for baptism and that we stand in the tradition of others. Acts 8 has all of these different ideas swirling in it, and where it really boils down to is Will we let the gospel transform our lives? Will we hear the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins, was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected? Do we believe that? And if we have, have we let it infiltrate our lives to the point that when Jesus asks us to go, or asks us to speak, or asks us to do, we respond in obedience? Have we responded to the gospel call so that we know what forgiveness is? Have we heard the truth of the gospel so that we have been made new we see this with the samaritans we question this with stephen we're sorry with uh, simon we see this model with the ethiopian and we see philip and peter and john walking faithfully how's our obedience to christ how's the transforming work of the gospel in us what does the work of the spirit look like in us let's pray Holy God, we thank you for the example of of Philip who faithfully does your ministry where you call him. For Peter and for John as they do the ministry that you've granted to them. Lord, thank you that you welcome the Samaritans in. A people that is not your people that you've now called as your people. Praise be to you, Jesus. Holy God, thank you for the example of the Ethiopian eunuch and the warning of Simon, where we see that contrast between receiving the gospel, receiving forgiveness, being made new, and just grabbing little pieces. Lord, my prayer for us, for those who've not called on your name, would you draw their hearts towards you? Lord, for those of us who have called on your name, would you continue that work? so that we would be found faithful. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work in us to make it life in and through us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and following. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.